Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I was about to take a drink of my coffee, but I won't. Um, I am a powerlifter, Island Games athlete, and I'm drinking coffee to stay away. So, nice. I'm 40 now this week. Oh, oh, that's right. Portal. Happy birthday. Uh, yeah. How about that? Old man. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. Old man strength. <laughs> nice. I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, owner of uh, Extreme Human Performance, and actually now professor of nutrition and physiology for the Kerrig Institute of Graduate Studies. So pretty excited about that. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I was down there presenting at their International Society of Clinical Neuroscience this past weekend, which was very awesome, in warm and sunny Florida. And they were they were so impressed they hired you on the spot. No, I've actually been doing it for <laughs> about six months. Oh, but okay. I'm, Working on uh, developing some coursework for them on some pretty advanced uh, exercise physiology uh, with some other people there. So hopefully it'll be out late this year or early 2018. Sweet. Yeah. All right, folks. We, we're going to cover a lot of news. We've got it backing up here. Uh, email, um, Twitter, as far as listener questions, that is. Uh, a lot of the listener questions kind of drag us into a news topic. So it's going to be a, a mishmash today, I think, of, of News and mail. Uh, you know what? Let me start with a bit of news. And I know Phil has some too. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, I just got this. Uh, you know, I'm always saying what comes across my desk. But this is from Nature. So, I mean, this is the big leagues, right? Nature reviews. In, in, in particular, this is endocrinology. Um, and a paper came out. Uh, this is spanking new on exercise stimulated glucose uptake and how it's regulated how you manage your blood sugar uh so listeners if you're not familiar i've always been taught that muscle tissue is the healthy recipient of most blood sugar like 70 percent of your blood sugar should end up uh, either entering muscle to be burned or stored in some way and you know if you live like the average american and you spike your blood sugar and your insulin every 90 minutes with cocoa pebbles and I don't know, cheese whiz, <laughs> soft pretzels, and Mountain Dew, then I'm just going to get sued by all these companies. Uh, then, <laughs> you know, that's too much and it sort of overspills, to use a bodybuilding term, and it could be lead to de novo lipogenesis. But the scientists, of course, debate how significant new fat creation is like that. And there's some nuances to this, and I'm not going to set off Dr. Nelson uh, with some of this, <laughs> but let's, let's stick to this new paper. It's from. Uh, Silo, S-Y-L-O-W, and colleagues. And again, Nature Reviews Endocrinology. Um, I just got it through the news. The paper itself, I think, was published uh, late last fall. But basically, it starts by saying skeletal muscle extracts glucose from the blood, right? And I remember John Ivey in our field uh, really suggesting the first time I heard it. And, he, of course, he's, he's one of those... Um, what I consider almost founding father of modern exercise phys in many ways, but 
suggesting that muscle contractions can literally equal a dose of insulin and how well the muscle takes up blood sugar. So just a couple of things that I learned from this. It says exercise increases uptake of glucose by up to 50 fold through the simultaneous stimulation of three key steps, delivery, transport across the muscle membrane, uh, and intracellular flux through the metabolic processes like glycolysis and on to glucose oxidation. So it's interesting that it also pointed out that exercise stimulated, right, muscle contraction, glucose uptake, again, kind of draining your blood uh, glucose to a certain extent in a healthy way, usually. Um, it's even preserved in insulin resistant muscles. So that's very cool, right? Because that makes exercise, uh, I think the word they use is a cornerstone of treatment. So if you have high blood sugar and um, right around one third of people in the US are now pre-diabetic or have metabolic syndrome. Imagine, so the next 100 people you meet, 30 of them you know, are probably poor carbohydrate metabolizers. And I, I, don't think it's, um, I don't think it's coincidental that also roughly a third of people are sedentary in this country, right? You don't move, you don't move, you don't use your muscles and the glucose doesn't get extracted out of your blood the way it should, you know? So uh, it, it talks about in this paper, there's redundancy in the signaling pathways, you know, to ensure that muscles have adequate energy supply from carbohydrates. So it's, a, it's just a nice review that puts some numbers on things like that 50 fold uptake, or it talks about the different ways that muscles uh, can transport in the glucose, right? And even insulin independent, right, ways. So a lot of people, I think a lot of clinicians, they automatically default to, oh, you're insulin resistant. Let's take a look at some, uh, you know, getting you on insulin therapy or a hypoglycemic med when if you could just get people moving, I think it just corrects it on such a fundamental level. So that's the only piece of actual news I have. The cool new paper, relatively new on um, how muscles take up blood sugar and sort of the power of a muscle contraction when it comes to make you a better carb user, I guess. Um, nice. I just have one quick note on that. When I was doing my PhD, I got farmed out to the epi department for a year and a half on a study. But one of the other studies that the professor I was working with was working on, which I don't think has been published quite yet, but they were looking at the effect of standing desks versus uh, sitting all the time. And what was cool in the study is that they had implantable glucose monitors in subjects all the time. And what they found was that if you were standing up, your spontaneous movement was quite a bit higher, and therefore your average uh, blood glucose was a little bit lower. Cool. I don't remember the exact numbers or anything like that, but it, it was kind of cool that even something that's that relatively uh, small, you know, at least showed a statistical effect. Whether that's clinically meaningful or not, I'm not sure, but I thought that was pretty interesting. That is interesting. You often hear that standing is better than being, you know, seated and that sort of stuff. And this would be one mechanism by which that, right, would help. It's, it's not yeah. just that you're burning a few more calories, but, yeah, just trying to contract postural muscles, soaking up a little bit of blood sugar. All right, Phil, did you say there was something about milk in the news? Yeah, and I'm reading up on the person who wrote it right now. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, and he's been debunked numerous times on numerous things. Anyways, it, it's titled, Got Proof, Lack of Evidence for Milk's Benefits. Mm. In this mm. case, by Dr. Mark Hyman. And he goes on about how horrible milk is and that there's no <laughs> evidence that it's uh, good for us in any way for, as far as, like, 
um, fighting osteoporosis or things like that. And like one of the guys, he goes in there. It's, it can re, it can promote weight gain. And one of our listeners is like, and that's a bad thing. How? <laughs> um, you know, it depends on the population. Depends on your goal. You know, and that's one of the problems is he goes on and talks about how it's uh, it's clearly been shown to promote obesity and type two diabetes, and then states all these articles about how they how low fat Nestle chocolate milk is worse for you than coca-cola oh boy and it's like mm. yeah and it's like well it's low fat chocolate milk it's right. not milk it's chocolate <laughs> you <know>? milk <laughs> <laughs> you're talking two different things I, i've never met a cow that shoots out nestle chocolate milk so if <laughs> i didn't have the brown it. cows yeah I, I mean i would totally <laughs> buy that cow but, uh, <laughs> you know it's it, it it just goes into a bunch of stuff like that and then um like I said, the osteoporosis thing, and that it, milk has a hormone called IGF one in it, and of course that causes cancer, and yada yada yada. Not even going into the fact that how much of that, if any, will even make it past your stomach due to the acid content, and, and things like that. I mean, we all know how drinking something is totally different than thinking something intravenously or <laughs> I am. You right, know, oral so, delivery, yeah, questionable. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of that thing is, a lot of that stuff is just uh, deleted out. It's no um, wonder. Yeah. yeah, people get but, so confused. I mean, imagine they're the same population that hears this um, information, also hear stuff from the go mad guys who want you to drink a gallon of the shit a day. You know, I mean, yeah. maybe regular <laughs> milk, uh, but yeah, but I should not say shit because. When we talk about weight gain, it is true. Like, there's a lot of studies that milk could be good for weight management, or at least some dairy products. I think I would go for the lower carbohydrate type stuff, like Greek yogurt, maybe. You know, but uh, I think the the issue here is that dairy products are insulinogenic, right? So they really cause a disproportionate rise in insulin. And we were just talking about that with muscle contractions and you know whatnot, but. That can be very advantageous for somebody trying to build muscle. So it's like we're talking about with goals and whatnot. It's kind of like with the same thing with the IGF-1 thing. Uh, but if, if dairy products do, in fact, have a high insulinogenic index and they have a fairly low glycemic index and in that they don't swing your blood sugar, it creates sort of a weird hormonal environment. And I don't know, maybe some of this information is a little dated. I haven't looked at this very specifically uh, Mike, maybe you've read something more recently, but that creates a very interesting scenario where you've got this indiscriminately anabolic hormone or anti-catabolic hormone, right, building hormone, storage hormone in your blood, insulin, uh, but it's not accompanied by, you know, the enormous sugar rush that you would get from a high glycemic, like, pop or something, right? So at, at the same time, milk is not empty calories, so I once had a student yeah. say, why would anybody drink milk? Uh, you know, cow's milk from another species, all that sort of stuff. And it gets very charged, these topics. But, well, let's see. Vitamin D, it might be fortified in there and not naturally in there, but it's one of the few sources, food sources that are rich in vitamin D. Um, High-quality proteins, right? Milk, Milk's 80% casein, 20% of that protein is whey. Yeah, I mean, potassium. There's just so many good things. It, it, to compare it to Pepsi, I think is ridiculous yeah. because it's empty calories. Pepsi is, and well, I milk can tell is you not. This too. Um, you know, he goes on further and, and states things like it causes intestinal bleeding in forty percent of infants worldwide, and things like that. And then you scroll down, and like none of this is cited at all. 
like none of his claims. There's not one reference to any study. That just throws up a huge red flag for me when I when I saw a doctor claims that are that hyper specific too. Yes, right. And I mean, there's lots of that going on, and then like none of it, none of it is cited at all. It's like, come on, show me a source. It, you're a doctor. You should know yes. this. You had to go through school. Yeah. So, <laughs> let me go find out where you got this info. It's not that hard to copy and paste that link. Um, so yeah, yeah. you know it, that reminds me of the old Sagan quote that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so you would think he'd have to cite all kinds of evidence if he's going to, yeah. you know, yeah. make make comments like milk is very bad, don't do it, kind of thing. And it's a, it's yeah, a controversial think... topic, though. Milk, I mean, because you got the raw milk people, you got the go mad people. You know, you've got. I've actually heard some people, even from the National Institutes of Health, uh, this particular gentleman. He was from India, and he was like, "Why would anybody drink milk? That's just not. That's not good for you. Don't do that." And I, I, I was almost thinking maybe there are cultural differences in some of this too. You know, but um, yeah, for me, whether it's an insulin response or just all that high quality protein. I mean, all that work that Stu Phillips has done with dairy proteins. It's really hard for me to walk away from something like that. I mean, that's some high quality. Everybody, I mean, whey protein. I know he's talking about whole milk as opposed to the extracted proteins, but yeah, I'm I'm not walking away entirely. Yeah, yeah. and there's even um, I did a genetic test recently a while ago. It was more for athletes, but uh, they even look at that and determine maybe genetically, you know, if you can process, you know, different types of dairy products and that type of thing and. You know, most of the clients I've worked with, for the most part, they usually don't have any problems. You'll run into a few people here and there that, you know, whether it's the, the lactose or it's the actual different types of dairy or specific caseinate proteins that may kind of bother them. But for the most part, it's pretty well tolerated in my experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll get some listener emails about that because, like I said, milk always seems to be controversial in some way mm-hmm. or another. But let's face it, I mean, the Institute of Medicine and the Food and Drug Administration and a lot of the the nutrition authorities in this country, they don't indiscriminately lay down things like a food guide. You know, like there's a dairy group on the food guide, and it's because there are certain nutrients that are really rich there to be had. That's why it's a food group. Oh, for goodness sakes. If we're going to fight something, there's worse things to fight than dairy. Oh, Christ. Come on. You know. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, let's move on to some questions because we have quite a few. This first one might be better for you guys because I really drifted more into the metabolic side of things or the nutritional side of things. But Jarrett uh, sent this a while back. And Jarrett, I apologize. It's been a while since I've been able to get to this. We sort of got this cue building up. But he says, I hear a lot of people say static stretching doesn't work. But it's done wonders for me. Um, following, uh, I think he's doing yoga, like long holds with breathing. Uh, so he'd like to hear us talk about static stretching and why people say it doesn't work and does it work, uh, you know, and compare that with different kinds of mobility work, whatever. Uh, Dr. Nelson, how about you? You want to go first? Yeah, I'm probably one of the people that said static stretching is worthless. So, <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Uh, um I think at the end of the day, I mean, if you look at the studies, right, so you'll see static stretching before some sort of dynamic speed and power type thing will decrease it. Um, The catch with that, though, is that the time that it stays decreased is not super long. 
So you can find all sorts of people that, you know, have done static stretching and they haven't lost limbs or had anything horrible happen to them either. Um, if I think about just in principle what you're trying to do, you're taking a limb and you're sticking it towards an end range of motion, and then you're just kind of waiting there for it to get weaker so you can get a greater end range of motion, which to me seems kind of backwards from what you would want. If you're trying to reduce your risk of injury, you would want to increase the strength at an end range of motion. Um, so I'm a bigger fan of you know, whether it's doing some hands-on work that's specific or sort of a dynamic mobility where you're going to what is your perceived end range of motion and then you're <clears throat> using muscular force to come back out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at a couple of newer studies also, like the classic you know, hamstring sit and reach, it would say, okay, we did this intervention and oh, look, you can now sit and reach two inches longer. But what they found with the mechanism of that is that your sensation of what you feel as a full stretch um, actually was altered. And it was actually, in my opinion, altered for the worst because you did not get the sensation as soon. Therefore, you can actually push a little bit farther and get a little bit more range of motion. Mm-hmm. But I think adding a range of motion when you're getting a decreased sensation, I think, sounds like a bad idea. And uh, last thing is that I think some stuff like, you know, yoga and other things like that can definitely be beneficial. Um, I did Bikram yoga for about two and a half years just to see what it was like. And um, I think there's benefits with that. But my guess is a lot of it is maybe more stability related. You're just doing some light movement. Uh, He mentioned that he's doing a lot of breathing stuff. So pretty much any yoga practice will emphasize, you know, trying to relax, specific breath work, things of that nature. Um, So I've wondered how much of that may account for the benefit of it. Um, Me personally, I didn't see any big change in my range of motion, but it definitely helped me recover from uh, one session to the next. Hmm. Yeah, I guess my perspective is that there, there's a lot of literature on that static stretching. I mean, sarco, sarcomeric remodeling and things like that. I, I do think, to say that it's, it's useless, I, I would disagree that it, it's useless. I'm not saying that there's not benefits to dynamic stretching as well. Uh, but a lot of the early work, foundational stuff in exercise fizz, was building flexibility. In fact, they used to say static stretching was preferred right and you shouldn't do anything that's more ballistic and so maybe this is a counter culture in some ways like oh we overstated something before and maybe they did overstate it and saying everything should be static but i i can i'm sure i can pull uh papers and reviews that static stretching has some benefits i mean personally i can tell you i, I did taekwondo for six years and we did a lot of static stretching and now we also did some dynamic stuff like during the actual practice right so it's hard to tease this stuff apart but and again, this is anecdotal, but I really felt like it played a, a real role. Like I could easily drop into a split forward or either side without a warm up, and I don't think I could have done that had I not done any type of, um, you know, static stretching work. Uh, but that is interesting how some of that stuff could be neural. Phil, what's your take on all that? Do you just let movements handle it, or do you have them do some stretch? No, I think I mean, I'm gonna. Mine would be stretch. Just do it. I don't care at this point. (laughs) Most people just need to do more of it. The only problems I've seen with static stretching is, you know, the studies is basically, oh, static stretching will reduce your power output, this and that. Yes. Like if I go and like static stretch my hamstrings and then go for maximal squat. 
Yeah, short time correctly. Right, yeah. Acute, um, acutely, yeah. You know, basically, come on, be smart about it. Stretch, now warm up, now max your squat. You know, and that's the same. Like, even with sprinters and stuff, from what I've seen, it's like, as long as they don't stretch and then do a 100% run, they're fine. You know, stretch, do some more, do your warm-up runs and things like that. I mean, I think it can be a, a valuable part of uh, a warm-up, you know, yeah. if I got a tight spot. But I, that said... I'm more in Mike's camp where it'll be like, I'll stretch, I'll hold something for five to ten seconds, I'll let off. I'll go again, I'll let off. Um, you know, what is it that the, the studies out there about that? I'm not going to pretend like I know this exactly, but I think it's the Golgi tendon and whatnot. Yeah, it'll actually one of the mechanisms. It'll actually tighten up, you know, if you stretch too long. Um, so you don't want to put your body in a... Uh, this fight flight situation where it actually tightens from being stretched too much. Cause it's like, Oh shit, this guy's trying to hurt me. You know, you know I think, uh, oh. I think one of the things we're teasing apart here is acute versus more chronic long-term structural effects. You know, I, yeah. I can't, I don't, I, I don't have the ability to point to the paper except for the book that I got it out of. But uh, I used to teach an advanced fitness programming class and, and I used Vivian Hayward's book and it's, she specifically mentioned that, in her reviews, the effects of static stretching or stretching period lasted about 60 minutes as far as like Mike was talking about getting a little bit further reach on a sit and reach box or or whatever it is. So I, I think we need to the one of the first things if the, in this controversy is what, are we talking acutely like right now yeah. or are we trying to get some type of chronic adaptation that would allow us to have, um, you know, less stiffness or greater range of motion and I, I can tell you the other topic, too, that kind of bugs me is a lot of strength coaches, they use the term flexibility and mobility as oh, yeah. synonyms, and they're not. No. You know, they're not. So yeah. I, I don't know. Phil, how, would, how do you look at that differently? I mean, you don't use that synonymously, I'm guessing. No. I mean, you know, mobility is the range you can actively move through something properly, whereas flexibility would be just how far you can stretch out. It's a totally different thing. I know people that can, they can hit you know, positions that I would call flexible that, you know, you have them actually move through an athletic position and it's horrible. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So, and usually that's due to a lack of strength and that's where people, that's where flexibility, mobility differ in my opinion. Mobility requires a certain amount of strength. Flexibility doesn't require strength at all. Yeah. You could twist yourself into a pretzel and, and be weak as a right. you know, twink. Yeah. So. To me, yeah. The mobility is, has a functional aspect to it. Yes. You know, yeah. What are your thoughts, Mike? Yeah. yeah, and that's my bias, too, is that I think, like, I worked with a, a female a collegiate athlete, and she was pretty strong, actually. A lot of times I agree with Phil that you, you get some of them, and they're very flexible. They can put their palms on the floor, but they can barely do a bodyweight squat. So it's yeah. definitely more of a strength issue. Um, and her issue was she was relatively strong, but she had done so much static stretching to try to fix the hip issue she had for literally years that when she went to do any movement, she could not just hold any of the end ranges of motions at all. So and Oh, so it was a weakness, the, like a loss of muscle strength kind of issue maybe. Yeah, and so I sent her to a local physical therapist, and they said that basically her hip capsule is all stretched out and everything is just super, super loose, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So she's missing the muscular control aspect of it now also because everything's kind of goofed up in her hip. Um, well, that's an extreme, you know, example too, but I think people assume that, well, I mean, how many clients have you guys had where they're like, yeah, I'm flexible. I can touch the floor. And like Phil said, okay, let's 
do a squat or a deadlift or a classic squat or something and they're like Ooh, it's like a baby giraffe trying to stand up yeah um, mm-hmm. and most of the time they spend a lot of time just doing you know, kind of static stretching so I don't know my bias is if people just even if they like static stretching right now if they can figure out a way just to slightly load it and go yeah. into that end range of position and come out of it you know using their strength whether that's loaded unloaded partially loaded whatever uh, my bias is I think that's more useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. And like like for me, for instance, I'm going to go in the gym today. I got a squat. What am I going to do? I'm going to do some stretching on just my left leg, the one I had a hip replacement on that still lacks mobility as far as the hamstring goes. And then from there, it's all active stuff. You know, I'll put a hip circle around my knees and stretch that out. I'll sit into squats. I'll, you know, yeah. get my mobile range of motions up. Right, yeah. Um, after I do a little bit of stretching for a problem area. Right. Yeah, and you may have a change in that specific area because of the surgery. And you know, like yeah. you were saying, Lonnie, if you look at trying to add sarcomeres and things of that nature, um, most of the early work of that actually came from leg lengthening studies, where they actually go in and have to, you know, cut the bone and mechanically lengthen the leg. You would see that you would add sarcomeres. You know, trying to do it otherwise, it's I haven't looked at it for a while, but I think it was some like ten or twenty or thirty minutes of work each day. You know, to try to get those back it's it's a it's a lot of a lot of work yeah i just i guess if if anybody were to say static stretching doesn't do anything um i i would disagree with that i think you know this is why science is reductionist right Uh, in research you're going to say toward what end if you're talking about applying force at the extreme end of a range of motion that's not the same thing as, let's say, passive range of motion or, you know, there's a lot. So and again, people always this is why I'm always ripping on the journalists because they always want to boil things down to is static stretching good? Is it bad? Is it worthless? These are subjective terms, and that's not how science works. They define these things, right, all these operational definitions, uh, you know, so but I do think. Although I do think it has its place, especially in people that I think have just such limited range of motion uh, when they're beginning. Um, The field really, like strength conditioning, has really moved toward, listen, that is not the, that's not the only way you do this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. There's ballistic and there's more dynamic stretching, and that's okay. Whereas I can tell you 10, 15 years ago, maybe 15, uh, almost nobody would have said that. They would have said, no, you, you know, warm up very lightly with like a systemic body, like light walk, jog thing, and then go do your static stretching. And that's not, that's certainly not the only option. I would never, never get behind that. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you what, it is almost time for break. We got a bunch more stuff here. I have one more from um, email and we got some stuff from the forums. So we'll come back and we'll tackle that. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. 
there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we are back. I'm going to start us out with one that, uh, oh, it's been prevalent in my gym of late. And it's with clients or this and that. And, well, other coaches. I do a lot of training with athletes and things like that. And then I also deal with a lot of parents or people that come in like I have this issue or that issue or I want to reach this goal. And I guess what I'm getting at is sometimes the truth sucks. (laughs) Um, and that's usually what the people don't want to hear. Um, like, Hey, I want to do this or this, this, this. And you tell them, okay, that's great, but you should probably lose some weight for that goal. And it's like, that's not what they wanted to hear. Um, like Mm -hmm. I got one athlete that's uh, my kid's super strong. He plays football, this and that. Yeah. He'd be better if he lost some weight. I don't care if he's on the line, you know, his, 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 his weight is too high for that. And while he's strong now, he's not very mobile. And a lot of his mobility issues are due to that. Or, um, for instance, I had a, a coach call me and, um, he goes on this spiel about, you know, I want to bring my team in this and that we've got a baseball team. None of my kids can hit the ball past the shortstop. I was like, okay, great. You know, we'll deal with them. Bring one of your kids in. I'll put them, show you what we're going to go through. And so they come in and I'm dealing with some 12 year olds that are about 65 pounds. Um, and like. A 35-pound squat is a struggle. A chin-up is not happening. A 15, 20-pound press is, like, not there. Um, we did some push-ups. And then at the end, I go through some agility drills, stuff like that. Run with, they, they do fine. They fly through that. All this stuff where you're running around doing, you know, body weight things. And it's like, okay, what I suggest is we need to do this. These kids can't squat 35 pounds. You're saying they can't hit the ball past the infield. They need to get stronger. And no, no, we need more agility. We need more of this and this and this and this. It's like, what are you talking about? I don't want to waste their time getting doing powerlifting. Do you want them to hit the ball? <laughs> you know? um, 
So and it's that type of thing. You got as a coach or as a person, it's your responsibility not to give this these people what you think is right, but what they need. Um, is kind of what I'm getting at. And I think a lot of people lose that fact. And this is also the reason why most coaches have coaches because it's really easy to put yourself in like, I like this and you do it, even though that's not what you need to reach your goal. Um, so it's just one of those deals. I mean, it's, it amazes me at times how people get blinded by their own, uh, preconceived notions of like this is what baseball players do they run around they do this yeah but not if they can't hit the ball more than 40 feet mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what i was trying to explain to him i was like i guarantee you if i take these same kids and we do nothing but i take all these 12 year old kids bring them from a 35 pound squat to a 135 pound squat and make them be able to do 10 chins and like bring their press up some and we do none of this running stuff they just do that on the field i guarantee you their play will go up Oh yeah. Um, and and he just couldn't grasp that. You know, he's like, "Well, that's not what baseball players do." Well, yeah, they do. Have you seen baseball players now? They're freaking jacked. Yeah. You know, if 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 strength didn't work, then Mark McGuire wouldn't have taken steroids. You know, it would have had no benefit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there is no there is no drug for mobility and and things like that. So, I mean, it is an aspect of the big three sports, and you're seeing it come up now more in baseball, basketball, football, yeah, uh, strength training, and it's it's even boxing and fighting now. You're seeing oh yeah these guys get stronger where it used to be body weight, body weight, body weight, body weight, you know. So, I mean, that's I guess my my message is sometimes the truth hurts. You need to see it if you want to make progress, you know. Um, but a lot of people just don't want to hear it. You know, that's so. Phil. To me, that's that's your role as a coach. You know, yeah. Like, as a teacher, as a teacher, I can impart information. But like in a clinical or a coaching setting, you got a, a patient or an athlete. You have to then translate that into a lifestyle change, a decision. You know, a get yeah. buy in. You know, and that kind of yeah. stuff. And if it's that's something they don't want to hear, then like then Phil, the quote unquote counselor, comes into play. You know, yeah. how do I well, how do I convince well, the sad this? thing is he wanted me to then change what I thought they needed and do what he thought I needed. Oh yeah. That's not gonna happen. You know, I was like, I'm not gonna train these kids and do something that I know they don't need. You know, and something I don't believe in. You can go elsewhere. I don't need your money. You know. Yeah. It's like see you later. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. So he went to somebody who would do that. I was like, that's fine. You know, I don't care. I don't need you. You need me. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's an <laughs> asshole thing to say, but it's true. You know, it's it's not me being big headed. It's like me sticking to my guns and I'm going to give these kids what they need. That's my job as a coach. My job as a coach is not to give you what I want. It's to give you what you need to make you better. Right. Yeah, and if you would have given in to his request and then he doesn't get the end result, even though it was his idea, it's he'll still fault. be mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've made that mistake in the past. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And, you know, so what I lose, I lost $600 a month, but it's like, whatever. I don't need it. So, you know, yeah. not, I'm not going to sell my soul for $600. Well, otherwise, you dude, know? I mean, people need to know that there's a certain identity to your gym, like what to expect. Otherwise, you become a politician and you try to please everybody and then you lose your identity and people won't even know what Strength Guild is about. I don't well, know. and that's the thing. The other thing I tried to explain to him, like there's there's one kid on the team that is – 
he's the kid that can knock the ball out of the park. He's a little chubby. He needs a little more mobility and agility and running. You know, the ones that can't squat 35 pounds don't need that. They can run all day long. And that's, uh, it's treating a person as an individual. And, And most of them needed to just get stronger. You know, and that's, it's not, they all don't need to run around. They all are individuals. They all need a different basis. And, you know, so it's giving the person what they need to reach the goal or do the sport that they need. And that's how I explain to my sport athletes is like, I don't, it doesn't matter if they can squat 500 pounds, if it makes them suck on the field. Yeah. You know, that, that means nothing. I don't want that. You know, my goal isn't to make my baseball pitcher squat 500 pounds. It's to make my pitchers pitch better. Yeah, and we're going to do what it takes to do that. If that means squatting 225, then we'll do that. You know, so. Yeah. Well, that's why it's called Strength Guild, not Agility Guild. So Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but, you anyways. know, I, I'm just such a, a big fan of of that approach, right? That and it's, it's funny to watch students sometimes. They'll, the realization will sweep over them that if I have uh, if I'm just stronger, Everything I do, every task during the day is so submaximal. It just yes. is a joke. Yeah. It's just easier. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a simple yep. and true statement. I don't know. Here's, a, here's one for you, Lonnie. Um, and I didn't even touch this one. <clears throat> so we got a vegetarian. He's been eating a lot of dairy and whey to spike his protein intake. Um, now to my headache. I recently became intolerant to milk, which leaves me with eggs as my only plant protein. Not ideal since I aim to add mass this coming year. I started counting my nutrients to be able to do this. I aim to take in 120 plus grams of protein to my estimated 64 kilo lean mass. My question regarding the flaws amino acid profiles of the three plant-based meals I eat every day. I started supplementing each of these meals with BCAAs, four one-to-one, two tabs, two grams leucine each meal. But I don't know if this is enough. Please help a desperate brother out. Is he taking enough leucine in? I would think two grams will push you and you know mike you're up on this too i mean i think you're further ahead of this on some of this stuff even than i am but i think it's something around three grams of leucine i think is considered a dose at which you don't really need to exceed uh, for protein synthetic but my my thoughts on branch chains particularly leucine a lot of people they always talk about the three branch chains isoleucine leucine and valine but leucine has always been my focus and i think i'm justified in that uh, some marketers will say, no, it's got to be a perfect ratio of this to this to this. And I think sometimes that becomes more marketing than, than science. But um, it was Nick Bird who I asked specifically, and he would know that. Yeah, he's um, a man of that. Yeah. I, I asked specifically about uh, the role of branch chains. Like if you took them and had no protein, uh, would there be enough amino acids in the free amino acid pool from you know inter-organ exchange and everything else that it would still be beneficial and no his response is really phil right along your analogy for years which is leucine is the stimulus but it's like flipping on the light switch if there's no juice in the line it doesn't happen yeah you know and so my thought on leucine has always been that it would be advantageous if you're going to do something that otherwise would be kind of on the lower end of a protein dose like a peanut butter sandwich right those are plant proteins Mm-hmm. Um, and not very effective by themselves. So it, it might be, at, well, it would be adding to the leucine content of that meal. So 
you know, if he's going to have two or three grams of leucine along with that peanut butter sandwich, that would actually help quite a bit, I think, with the anabolic effect of that meal. He's providing at least some juice in the line, you know, in the yeah. source of ingested amino acids. I mean, plant proteins are incomplete, right? So they're missing one or more essential amino acids, indispensable amino acids. So, in fact, if, if he's interested in the profile, and a lot of people realize this, but um, grains lack lysine. Beans lack methionine. And that's why people around the world, if you look at different diets, they food combine, you know, mm -hmm. they'll protein, complementary protein combined stuff like lima beans and corn, the deep south, or uh, uh, I don't know, a bean burrito, you know, yeah. uh, in the southwest. You know, the burrito is made from grains. The, the uh, refried beans are, of course, beans, you know, that kind of thing. But or I think if beans, popping, you know? yeah, popping branch chains or leucine is going to be a thing, <clears throat> it wouldn't be by itself. Because again, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there's not enough amino acid. You would quickly exhaust and deplete your cellular amino acid pool with that with that leucine, um, and then you wouldn't want to add leucine to something like a big whey or whey casein combination drink, um, because the whey provides so much leucine anyway. Yeah. You know, I what what's your take on that, Mike? Yeah, I, I would generally agree with that. I mean. Uh, from talking to Lane Norton and looking at the research, the leucine threshold is about 2.5 to 3.5 grams. Mm -hmm. um, there's some other studies looking at essential amino acid mix as low as possibly 6 grams. So I have used that in some people that are um, a vegetarian if they you know can't handle whey and other proteins like that. Um, if you do get essential amino acids, though, and generally they smell like cat piss. So mm -hmm. <laughs> not, yeah, by themselves, not very yeah. Palatable. Um, but there was a study in uh, 2014 from uh, leucine supplementation of a low-protein mixed macronutrient beverage enhances myofibular protein synthesis exactly. in young men. Yep. Uh, this is from uh, Dr. Stu Phillips' lab. And the short version is that they took a low-protein, so 6.25-gram beverage, and they compared it to a 25-gram beverage. Um, but in the low one, they added five grams of leucine to it. And what they saw in terms of an acute response was not much of a difference between those two. So that just gives you know some data that if you have enough leucine, like you guys were saying, that you can turn on sort of that assembly process, and then you're providing energy and you're providing the building blocks, so sort of your essential amino acids. Uh, the data that we have so far now shows that you're probably going to be okay practical point about that too phil is um you got to think that there's going to be a certain amount of leucine even in the little dab like if you're gonna have a low protein yeah. meal like that peanut butter mm -hmm. sandwich it's not just the two or three grams you're eating there's actually a little bit present in the food you're eating as well right so it, it's a it's just the kind of thing you gotta uh consider so yeah yep and last part i would add too that i don't know if you mentioned it but uh, in vegetarians, I've also used uh, rice protein, um, and that's pretty bland, tastes pretty good. And if you use a little bit higher dose, you probably don't need to add any leucine to it. So if you're using like a 40-gram dose, uh, it would probably be pretty good. So that may be another option for him too. Right, that's true. Just up the, the raw dose of the, of the protein right. itself, yeah, instead of spiking it, yeah. Yeah, people mentioned pea protein and hemp protein and quinoa and stuff like that too. But Yep. Yeah. Um, so... And yeah, it's just, that's think. the deal is with vegetarians, you can do it. You just need to be a little more anal about it. Like we had that episode yeah. on with uh, uh, Robert Dosen Remedios, and that's... Yeah, 
Yeah. I love that episode because he was very upfront. Most vegans are like, this is the way to live. He's like, no, this yeah. is stupid. You know, <laughs> it's if a I challenge. to make gains, you know, I would not do this, you know. And right. he's like, I have to be super anal about what I eat because I know I'm not getting what I should. And most vegans won't say that. They're like, it's the perfect diet. You know, and he's like, no, this is stupid. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm only doing it because of ethical reasons. Yeah. And right. You know, that was, I love that about him. Right. So. Well, it's like the milk thing. You're removing whole sections of the food guide. You yeah. know, these are nutrient rich yeah. food groups that it's hard to get some of those nutrients, like whether it's B12 or uh, complete yeah. proteins or zinc or, you know, you're removing that. So you better plan, you know, like I said, with some of the protein combining or, uh, supplement your B12, something like that. I don't know. Uh, okay, let me get to one. Uh, Dean sent us a nice letter, and I appreciate this, Dean. Uh, it's sort of long, and he did his own literature review, so I think he's answering himself in a way, but I think he wants our opinions nice. too. So He says, uh, Hi, I originally sent this on Facebook, but I figured you probably get swamped with Facebook messages from strangers and don't check it often. Correct already? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I'm not a big Facebook fan. Um, I get on there once a week just to go to the Iron Radio group, and I ha if I happen to notice a message, you know, then I'll try to respond. I'm, I'm not rude, but I just I'm not on there very much. But he says I'm from Australia, and I've been listening to Iron Radio for the last 12 or so months. I'm a former rugby player over here, and used to compete in martial arts competitions, specifically Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, due to the injuries from the above, I've cut back on the martial arts and gotten into powerlifting, and I'm loving it. I've gone back and listened to most of your old episodes, uh, and the content you provide uh, is pure quality. You guys do an amazing job. By far, my favorite podcast. Uh, so he goes on a little bit about a donation. He's an IT nerd, he explains, and that maybe he can help us because, you know, there's been times over the years where we're fussing about the server or how we have to back up on YouTube or whatever. But so I appreciate that, Dean. And if, if we run into that again, uh, look for an email from me. But yeah. uh, he says, additionally, I've come across some news. I am genetically predisposed to hypertension, and I've been searching for a natural way to lower blood pressure for a while now. I came across some studies on the various benefits of garlic supplements. Here are the links. So he was giving me studies. And um, to summarize what he has sent, uh, it looks like it's a bit of a mixed bag. You can find some studies that garlic might reduce blood pressure if the dose is uh, high enough. Um, a lot of the studies, and this is what my understanding of garlic was, that, that do show some beneficial effects of garlic, and not all do, are on lowering your, your blood cholesterol uh, as opposed to your blood pressure. So some of this depends on if it lowers your blood pressure. Are you hypertensive to begin with? You know, or are you actually normal, normotensive to begin with, stuff like that. Um, I, of all the different things that I would think about with, with blood pressure, uh, the, honestly, the first thing that comes to mind would not be garlic. I mean, you could give it a try and see if your systolic comes down or even your diastolic a couple of units. But uh, fish oils, which a lot of us take already, certainly help. And again, I don't have all the information on Dean, but I was really surprised. I saw there was a big... Uh, like multiple regression analysis, and they suggested that one-third of everything that goes into what's making your blood pressure what it is is your fatty acid choices. And I think hmm. that's fascinating. So, uh, of course, fish oils being, you know, helping with reduce the, the, the blood pressure as opposed to the typical kinds of fats. And I can tell you, Australia, Britain, the U.S., 
the numbers are alarming over the last few years. We just keep eating more and more omega-6s, you know, and less and less omega-3s, or at least more omega-6s. So if you don't seek the omega-3s in a fairly high dose, you know, I can see why, again, I'm talking about like one out of three people are hypertensive or uh, uh, pre-diabetic, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I really think it has to do with the fatty acid imbalance, I guess, that that we're consuming. So heavy on the omega-6, so low on the omega-3s. So uh, that would be my first thought is take a good look at your fish oil dose. Um, I'm not going to tell you to do this, Dean, but I take four triple-strength fish oils a day. I'm not playing games with this. Um, I've had a lot of physicians say the patients they have that they feel like they don't respond uh, whether it's blood triglycerides or blood pressure or whatever they're trying to do in cardiac risk factors, uh, it's because they dabble around with like one or two normal strength fish oils a day and they're not just not taking enough. Uh, so that would be my thought. Um, and like I said, the stuff on garlic, most of what I remember from the garlic stuff as, you know, cause, I mean, there's a, a, almost an infinite number of topics that we all need to keep up on is that if it does anything, it's more on the cholesterol reduction side of things and and again it looks like you're reading some stuff that there's a little bit of evidence on the um hypotensive the you know the blood pressure reducing effects but some of those studies have control issues uh you know and that kind of stuff so uh it, it, it's hard to interpret in that way i've never perceived garlic as a very strong hypotensive agent uh and like i said there's some other things i might take a, a look at first but um you know, give it a try. I don't think there's anything particularly uh, toxic about some of those substances in garlic. That Allison or Allian, there's a couple of different ones. Um, see if it lowers. I don't know. Mike, have you heard anything about garlic and blood pressure? Uh, not that much on blood pressure, really, to be honest. I pulled up a review here on uh, garlic and cardiovascular disease, a critical review. This is from American Society for Nutrition. Uh, author's last name is Raman, R-A-H-M-A-N. Um, that's probably about the <laughs> most up-to-date thing I've seen on it. And in general, it just said, you know, hey, most of the trials show that there may be an effect of delaying cardiovascular disease, but, you know, the standard more research is required type thing. So I'm yeah, not too much of an expert on that area. Um, I have looked up some of the effects of garlic as a antibacterial, antimicrobial immune system mm -hmm. and there's actually some really good data on that now does that you know sort of help with the common cold and things of that nature yeah that data is a little bit more messy um, but the other part too for the active components if you buy garlic um, cut it up into very small uh, parts and then leave it sit for about 10 to 15 minutes because they get the active compounds that actually has to react with the oxygen in the air so if you're trying to sort of maximize that part of the effect of it uh, chop it up and leave it sit for a while okay what else we i can have? agree that you also said about the um, omega-6 omega-3 so i use like an at-home uh, testing kit for some clients and in general most of the ones that come back are the ones that have recently have been a little bit better in terms of omega-3 i think people are getting the message about fish oil things of that nature uh, omega-6 is still generally high, but as a whole, I would agree that omega-6 is pretty high. Omega-3, even in people taking fish oil, a lot of times is still uh, very low. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, that's what I've got. I mean, I have a few papers that I've been pulling, by the way, listeners. Let me just add this before we wind down uh, to try to address maybe in a little more informed way some of the questions that have been coming down the pike because I, I'd like to do a little episode on, um, you know, some of these different basically oral, mouth and oral interventions, you know, because we were talking about mouthpieces, for example, clenching and all that. I found several abstracts on that. Um, maybe pull in some stuff about the caffeine or the carbohydrate mouth rinses. I just reviewed a paper on that, in fact. Oh, um, nice. I, I, I'm not going to give any more details than that, but it's interesting that some of these things, and again, we already did that episode on nerve, on neural tweaks, but specifically about you know, your mouth, uh, even stuff about like the oral mucosa and the, and the oral microbiome and delivery systems and stuff, because not all this stuff is directly related to what you swallow, you know, and I think that's what's kind of interesting about it. Like, you know, how many people actually think about the role of your mouth in your lifting performance, you know, and it'd be fun just to kind of see what's what's possible, I guess. Uh, so I, I'm going to grab some literature review on some of that. Um, I've been browsing some stuff about static versus dynamic stretching. And I, in fact, I was just reading a little bit while we were chatting uh, some systematic reviews. And it looks like what we were saying is essentially correct. You know, there are some benefits to static stretching, uh, but the field is really moved when it comes to injury prevention and that sort of stuff has started to appreciate and move toward the dynamic stuff. So, uh, but we can, we can share some stuff with that, you know, as well. Just, it's just fun to go back and look at what the literature says, because you can't expect Phil or Mike or myself to be, you know, up to the minute on every imaginable uh, topic on yeah. both nutrition and exercise science. It's, it, it's an enormous task, you know, so. Yeah, it's one thing I like about specific questions and knowing them ahead of time and being able to do articles and stuff is it, you know, our different lectures, it gives you time to kind of go back and really have a base knowledge. You have some info, like you said, there's just tons of stuff. Like even in the uh, MedSci recently, a couple months ago, they had a whole uh, section on the back dedicated to just all different types of, you know, fatigue and central fatigue and different mechanisms. And um, so there's always like tons of, of good stuff coming out. Yeah. I, you know, we kind of, and I think listeners know, right, we're, we fly by the seat of our pants. I mean, it's not like we're just excited amateurs here. So we just kind of bank on the idea that between Dr. Nelson and myself and Coach Stevens, that we can answer something from different perspectives. Uh, but we're going to try to keep it evidence-based, right? And that's why we're going to sometimes give you tentative conclusions and we're not going to give you conclusions like this is bad or this is this is the only way to do it you know stuff like that because that's just not really how science works science doesn't apply um value judgments to stuff you know it just it doesn't so okay well having said that i guess we'll just catch up with everyone next week see ya Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. 
So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.